You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. Thank you for tuning in. There's a lot of really cool stuff happening with Bible Prophecy Talk, so I encourage you to subscribe to all the feeds, to watch YouTube, watch mainly the site, BibleProphecyTalk.com, because there's a lot of developments and new projects that I'm going to get started on very soon. I've been talking about putting out a really big film, but I think what I decided to do is to do that film in a series and to put them out starting just as soon as I get the promotional stuff done for this upcoming book, Mystery Babylon. So instead of telling everybody, hey, everybody, this is this film is going to come out in a year, I'm going to really start putting it out uh, almost immediately, though it'll take me a little time to put each video out. So stay tuned to Bible Prophecy Talk. There is a lot more coming on this podcast and in this website. So Let's just jump right in. I've got a number of questions here I want to answer today. Let's start with question number one. This question comes from Edwin, and he writes, I've always viewed the seven churches in Revelation as seven church periods on top of the real church meaning they had. I used to see them as representing like the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church and so forth. However, now I view them as periods of time that are dominated by those church movements and not necessarily those churches. Uh, such as Thyatira representing the Catholic Church, I now see as a period of time that the Catholic Church was more prominent. However, that brings me to my reason for this email. Philadelphia is promised to be kept from the time of trial because you have kept my word about the patience and endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. With your pre-wrath view, which is making more sense to me, how is Philadelphia kept from the time of trial? Maybe I'm totally wrong here with the seven churches, But the last four seem to have some suggestion of end times. I actually see the parables in Matthew 13 as a similar way, in a similar way. Okay, Edwin, great question. I also used to believe this, that the seven church, uh, seven churches in Revelation uh, 2 and 3 were kind of representing churches of the past. Um, You seem to have modified your view slightly to say that they represent those different ages in the past. But really, that's not much of a modification. It's just, I mean, it's just sort of the same idea. I would actually say that, as you said, it seems to you that four of these churches have end times implications. Well, I think that that's, that's where you're right. I think that, and it's not just four, it's all of the churches that are mentioned have end times implications. And in fact, I would say there is absolutely no textual reason whatsoever No indication in the text, no prompting from the author or anything in a standard study of hermeneutics that would make a reader of the Bible think that these seven churches represent seven church ages of all time. In fact, I think that, and I'm not sure exactly of the history of this uh, particular idea, but it certainly has been used to bolster the pre-trib view. I mean, if the Church of Philadelphia is the, the, uh, the church that we're in right now, they're the ones that are, quote, kept from the time of trial, so it kind of... Uh, make sense in, in a sense there. Let me first say about the Philadelphia thing, and I got this from Alan Kirshner when we uh, discussed the Jimmy DeYoung thing. He said, "Yeah, so what? Kept from the time of, kept, kept from the time of trial. That's what pre-wrath view the pre-wrath view is. I mean, we're kept from the time of trial. Here, the trial is mentioned that, that, that comes on the whole earth. The wrath of God. The trial in that case is not." the uh, Antichrist. I mean, that has nothing to do with the wrath of God. I mean, in a sense, the one of the primary things that the Antichrist does is to persecute Christians. The persecution of Christians is not the wrath of God. That doesn't make any sense. The wrath of God 
is what we see in the trumpets and bowls, which is clearly bigger and badder than anything the Antichrist will do. That's the time of trial. The Antichrist is not. So I, I of course, think that uh, Philadelphia's, the, the mention of them being kept from the time of trial, etc., is just the same thing as the pre-tribulational view, in a sense. I mean, we both believe that the church will not see wrath. Uh, it's not appointed to wrath. And so there is no problem with the Philadelphia verse, but I would expand this to say that every mention of every church is in the same context and mentions these little things. In fact, there's a very similar pattern in all the letters to the churches. And what, I'll, what my view of this is, and what I think that the text supports, is that all of these churches are churches that exist in the end times, in a sense. I mean, of course, that he's talking to physical churches as well, as you said, and I think that it's important to, to remember that he's writing to a church in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Ephesus and Smyrna, and Pergamos, etc. And they, there is details, there are details in this letter that apply to those churches at that time. But there is also, and what makes people see something bigger here, is that there is obviously implications for us too, and that these do, in some sense, represent other kinds of churches, if you will. And I think that instead of these representing ter different churches of different times, they're representing different types of churches, uh, and all of them are being warned about the end times. In fact, the reason why the seven churches appear in the book of Revelation is because in context they're all being warned about what is about to tr be transpiring in the book of Revelation. And they all have little tiny things that mention this in the same way it mentions the Philadelphia thing. I, I think I should read some of it to explain what I mean. Um, for example, the first one, the church of Ephesus, it says a lot of things, and then it says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. That right there, the, the threat, if you will, is that when he comes, he's going to remove their lampstand. So what I'm going to suggest to you is all of these have the parousia in mind. That is, when the Lord appears... Uh, he's going to do something or reward something. He's all—he's always warning them, whether bad or good, uh, about his soon coming. Okay. So, and he also says in, to Ephesus something that he says to every single church. This is part of the consistent pattern of all the letters to the seven churches: is that they all end with a message to the overcomer. Okay, it, this says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, you'll notice that every every message to the overcomer is contrasted with something about eternal life. In this case, it's talking about he's going to give them to eat from the tree of life, which is the midst of the paradise of God. As we read through the seven letters, it becomes clear that everyone who he says, to, if you overcome, you will receive eternal life. Now, that is very very difficult for us to, to parse because it's unambiguously saying that if you do something, you will, in a sense, get eternal life. And we know uh, very clearly through many places that eternal life is through by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. However, there is this situation here that appears only in the context of end times persecution. We can find little uh, things like in Matthew 10 in different places where he says, you need to not de deny me. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Be afraid of me. And, and all kinds of different places where he talks about during this persecution, we need to, to stay uh, strong and to overcome. Now, I go in, at length into this in my Hebrews commentary about um, for example, Peter essentially did the same thing. Under the threat of persecution, he denied Christ. Yet, 
Christ, as he says before that, I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. That's a very technical thing that he says there in his prayer, and it's a big deal. Essentially, I would say that, that the Bible speaks as if in the end times, during this great persecution, when this apostasy happens, this great exodus from Christianity, people leave Christianity because of the threat of the persecution that the Antichrist uh, uh, does. So, and, and, and the Bible's warnings about that is, are don't, don't leave Christianity because of this persecution. Don't be a part of the apostasy. Because the apostasy seems to be a willing leaving of Christianity uh, for safety and security. So whatever happens in the end times, there seems to be that option. That's one of the reasons I think I'm so passionate about Bible prophecy is because it speaks so clearly about this end times leaving of Christianity as a result of people not essentially being mentally prepared for it. And so anyway, and and this is a very, I mean, I've read commentaries of, of like Calvinists and things like that, who I believe I, I am Calvinistic in the sense that I am very strong, that you can't sin your way out of the covenant, you know, once saved, always saved in that sense. But there is this sense in the end times persecution where we're warned not to leave Christianity in the face of persecution. And this verse is an extremely hard verse for a Calvinist who re- wants to remain strong to tulip, has a, has a difficult time with, because it says clearly, if you over overcome what's coming, then I will give you the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Long kind of thing there, but let me, that's not really where I want to focus on that last part. I want to focus on some other stuff. So let's go through a few of these others. Revelation 2 eight is to, uh, begins the letter to Smyrna. In Smyrna, it says a, a few things about their particular situation. And it says this, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer now, this, this might be referring to their particular persecution there in Smyrna. It's not really clear if this is about... Uh, in fact, I would say this is definitely referring to their persecution because he says, you will have tribulation ten days, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he's probably talking to Smyrna about that. But remember, he's warning them about a persecution in this case. And then he gives a letter to the overcomer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Again, this is regardless of how you're viewing this. Every letter to the second to 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 the churches is referring to a warning about what's coming, and so that only makes sense if these churches, uh, at least that are being warned uh, for uh, the overcoming part, all are in a sense existing at the same time. They're all being warned to 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 be prepared for what's coming in the rest of the book of revelation that's why this exists here okay then but it gets more clearer as we go down revelation 2:12 talks about uh is begins the letter to pergamos and it says in verse 16 repent or else i will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth Okay, again, the sword of his mouth is a reference to something that's that's going to happen uh, in the future and we're going to see in the book of Revelation, but it's also, you know, something in the Old Testament you can see and whatnot. But the point is, he's warning them about his perusi will not be good for them. I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So repent is the message to this particular church. Again, his, he's warning them about his perusia, his coming. Okay, um... Next, the Church of Thyatira. You know, he also has a letter to the Overcomer there, but it's really not important the letter to the ever- Overcomer for so much as these little things that he's saying in the context that obviously are about his coming. To Thyatira, he writes, "Indeed, I will cast her into a sick bed, and to those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds." Now, again, he this is probably referring to their particular situation, but again, it's a warning about a coming great tribulation, not necessarily in this case about his coming. But 
Then he gives a letter to the overcomer or the warning to the overcomer. Hold fast. Here, here it is. But hold fast what you have till I come. Okay, so Thyatira also has this warning of his parousia. In this case, it's unambiguously an eschatological coming. Uh, he who overcomes keeps my word to the end. To him, I will give power over the nations. The reason I know this is eschatological is because the next verse quotes, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Okay, so it's quoting a messianic, millennial uh, prophecy there. So that's even before uh, that. So we're, we're definitely, his parousia, the coming there, is an eschatological one. So now three of these uh, churches, in the well, four of these churches that we so far have mentioned, have been warning specifically about the parousia. Um, that is the rapture, if you want to look at it that way. They're warning about the moment of the rapture. And of course, the parousia is a technical term that really describes not just his initial appearing for the rapture, but also all the events that occur really up until the millennial reign and even after. So the parousia is a very multifaceted event. That's such an important thing to happen, to, to understand. It makes you realize you don't have to have two comings, one at the rapture, one at the Armageddon uh, uh, thing. You can have one parousia that encompasses all those things. It's how scripture speaks of it. It's a very technical term to refer to. Um, a, a regal visit, and it's uh, discussed at length in the uh, rapture video that I did called Matthew 24, um, the rapture puzzle solved with Matthew 24, or the pre-wrath rapture, I think is what I call it, uh, but that's discussed in a lot of great books. I would recommend a good book for you if you're interested called um, Rapture Questions Answered Plain and Simple by Robert Van Campen. I consider it probably one of the best books to get as a primer uh, for a lot of these kinds of uh, issues. Okay, and I think you're getting the point here, but he continues to Sardis and Philadelphia um, and, and mentioned the same kind of eschatological things in the context. Now, and, and you'll see then in Philadelphia when he says, because you have kept my command to preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which has come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, in this case, Philadelphia is representing, if you will, a faithful church of which there is very little uh, negative stuff to say to. There are churches like that that exist today in the body of Christ. There are a lot of different types of churches in different places, some that are focusing on this thing, and some have a little right and a lot right. I think it's better to see these wherever we're looking at them, the same way that they were written in the time that they were, that is, contemporary churches. It's written to churches of all time, and these churches apply to all churches on the earth at all time. Uh, in the case in Asia Minor, all these churches existed at the same time, yet they had different characteristics. And in our day, which is clearly the reason it's in Revelation and all the eschatological implications, um, uh, also apply to a lot of the churches, if not all of the churches on earth today. Because Philadelphia was a faithful church is the reason why in the eschatological portion of its description, it doesn't have anything negative to say about it, his, his coming. Rather, about when he discusses the Perusia in Revelation 3.10, it is a good thing. Because you have kept commandment preserve, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which is to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Dwell on the earth. That's what he's been saying to everybody else. He's like, you got to repent because that day is coming. When he when he comes to that let part of the letter, but for Philadelphia he says, you know, I'm going to keep you from trial, which come which will come upon the earth. Again, this is what pre wrath believes. It's what pre trib believes. It's what just about everybody believes. Um, that is pretty, you know, uh, face value of how they interpret scripture. That is, the church will not see the wrath of God, and so that is what this is talking about. And so this is no problem for pre tribulational or the pre wrath view of the rapture. And 
I think that is all for that one. Let's move on to question number two. The next question comes from Steve, and he says, The question is concerning the two resurrections, the one being to damnation in the lake of fire, and the other being into life and immortality, and being the first resurrection. My question is, how does the timing of the rapture, especially from a pre-wrath position, coincide with the first resurrection? And also, how does this expose the flaws of the pre-tribulational position? Personally, I'm having trouble finding material on the issue and see it as something that is worth understanding and doesn't make sense from a pre-trib rapture position. Okay, well, let's first talk about the two resurrections. I think this is an important thing just doctrinally to understand and it's something that is misunderstood and it's important to talk about real, real quickly. There are two resurrections that are going to happen in the future if you want to look at it that way. When I say two resurrections, I'm referring to types. There actually are multiple times in which resurrections happen, but each one of those times that resurrections happen, they are part of two sets of resurrections. One set only happens before the millennium, and one set only happens after the millennium. They are referred to by Daniel as, well, it's referred to theologically as the resurrection of the just and unjust. Daniel 12, 2 and 3 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, so Daniel is telling us here that there are, there is eternal life for everybody. But when you wake up, it's either going to be for everlasting life, and there's also some that, have, that awake to everlasting contempt. So that everybody gets resurrected. This is um, a consistent understanding of the resurrection all throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we actually see a, a very clear theological description of it in Revelation 20. So before we get into it, I need to read the relevant passages in Revelation 20. Starting in Revelation 20, verse 4. Okay, so this is this is in context um, after the the uh, devil and let's just read it. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released a little while. And I saw thrones and and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had, wor who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Then he goes on, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together, etc. So now he's going to talk about the battle of Gog and Magog. And then he concludes this way, Then I saw a great... Uh, let me just read the verse before. The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So after Satan is released, he goes and does his Gog Magog thing and then he's cast into the lake of fire and tormented day and night forever and ever. No more thousand years, no more nothing. He's done. 
Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay. First of all, let me draw your attention to that second death. Nothing good is happening there. These people are getting judged by their works. Okay? These are only the, this is only the second death, the, the second resurrection. The j- unjust, only people after the millennium uh, are at this great white throne judgment. And woe to you if you've got to stand before God and get judged according to your works, which all of these people have in fact done. Now, Christians will, in a sense, be judged by their works. We get the sense of that in terms of their rewards and sometimes called the Bema Seat Judgment, which happens probably at the resurrection, but at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I think is probably a good place to put that. But anyhow, um, the point is, is that this great white throne judgment is at the end of the millennium. The Bible calls it the second death. The other one, and, and this is important to realize that the Bible has given us very clear time signatures here. We know that this first resurrection occurs after, or excuse me, before the millennium. And the reason that the Bible mentions it is in context of these people that have been beheaded during this time when the Antichrist was, you know, asking people to worship him and, or not asking, probably commanding them to worship them and also getting people to receive marks on their foreheads and hands. These people were said not to do that. They made it through this period and didn't do it. And then it concludes, this is very confused. I remember hearing this for the first time, being very confused. And it says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, referring to these these people uh, who who didn't receive the mark. This is the first resurrection. What a good way to probably think of that is this is the conclusion of the first resurrection. All the righteous people; these were the last people, the the last people that got in because of righteousness, or essentially because of, of faith in Christ. The last heaven goers got in right at this last uh bit at the they went through the day of the lord and everything else people these are the people that got saved through the trumpets and the bowls and the wrath of god in other words not everybody during the wrath of god gets killed um this is referring to those people who uh, are killed during that time and i suspect my my inclination is that the reason why they are beheaded because before the people that were slain by the Antichrist, there, there, there's a different word for them. Um, how long, O holy and true, until you uh, judge those on the earth who, you know, sl- they were slain for, you know, all this, the word it uses, slain there, is a broad word, basically just meaning killed. And then, of course, the judgment does come on the earth, known as the wrath of God. But the people that survive out of the wrath of God portion are said to be beheaded, and that word is very strong. It is beheaded. They were only beheaded. I suspect that it has something to do with why people are not able to die during this period. Um, That beheading is probably the most efficient way to circumvent that problem. For whatever reason, people are not dying during this time. Okay, So the circumvision circumvision of that uh, problem is to cut their heads off. That's my guess. Whatever the reason, they are um, these people who, who are the last ones to make it in uh, to complete the first resurrection 
are uh, beheaded. Now, we know that other resurrections have happened before this. The rapture, obviously, has happened before this. I mean, you could go into other resurrections. I mean, Lazarus and stuff like that. But it's really not technically a resurrection. Jesus, however, is. And there are also some people that there's a lot of conflict about these people in Matt, that Matthew mentions that seem to be resurrected around the time of Christ's resurrection. I'm not sure what's going on with that. And I don't plan to make a, uh, a guess at it. But I will say that at least Jesus really did resurrect, and he's called the first fruits of the resurrection. So we know that the first resurrection can't be these guys that are beheaded during the time of the day of the Lord. So it doesn't mean first in the sense of a series of. It means a conclusion of the first resurrection of the two, the just and the unjust. I hope I'm making sense here. Um, so that's that's what this is. Now on to the, the meat of this question. is What is this first resurrection have to do with the pre-trib and post-trib and all that other stuff. And I can see, not knowing what I just talked about, why this would be confusing regardless of the stance that you have. It was always confusing to me until I sort of plugged in the whole, you know, resurrection of the just and unjust thing. But, but um, no, this, this actually doesn't have anything to do with the rapture or have implications for pre-tribulationalism or pre-wrath or whatever. This should be the same basically view of any that anybody should have as far as you know regardless of their uh, view of the timing of the rapture the first resurrection is is something that happens clearly very very past the the rapture if you want to consider the rapture obviously which is a part of the first resurrection but it's at least the second part the middle part of the resurrection the first being jesus the second being uh the rapture and the third being these people who make it uh, that become Christians after the rapture. So there's, there's your three groups that, that make it. And technically, you could say Paul in First uh, Thessalonians 4 says the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain, though we who are alive and remain doesn't really mean they're resurrected. It would just be the dead in Christ. Anyway, that's a little too technical, I suppose. But you get the point. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question number three comes from Marcus, and he says, What do you think the end times will be like? Or perhaps more specifically, the question would be better put as, How weird do you think the end times will be? I mean, that question in regards to the overall culture which people live during the end times, particularly in the Western world. Okay, now Marcus has a, a kind of a view here that because of the supernatural things that are happening, in the book of Revelation and everybody's sort of apathy towards them, his view is that everybody's kind of used to supernatural things happening. He concludes that that is probably because they are uh, sort of an open pagan thing going on there. He quotes Revelation 9.20, which says, And the rest of, me, of the men which were not killed by the plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils, idols of gold and silver, and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor walk. So his view is that in the end times, everybody kind of gets into a very pagan world and is kind of is used to supernatural things happening. And I guess I kind of had a similar view of that in the past, but I don't think that that's going to be the case. Um, it seems to me that the Antichrist would not, I mean, when it comes down to it, I mean, whatever the world is doing right before the Antichrist, I don't know. 
But afterwards, we do have some indication in Scripture. And the world either worships him or dies. So there's not going to be a lot of people. and, And he seems to make that pretty difficult to get out of. So you're either an Antichrist worshiper or you are on the run, basically. And so I would say that that's the bottom line is that there the and I would even suggest that this idea of gold silver and brass idols and stone and all this stuff that I mentions here is either a reference to the general idolatry of the the generation that the end times come on come to or it could be a reference to the in revelation 18 when it talks about the merchants brought to mystery ba- what the items the merchants Uh, brought to Mystery Babylon, all of those things are mentioned as a part of the worship of Antichrist. So I think that they could very well, and we know idols are made of the Antichrist. In fact, the image of the beast is, uh, in my opinion, there to, as I mentioned in the last podcast, to essentially receive the worship um, of the Antichrist, and it also has the ability, but whether or not people make other idols to him or worship him in their houses or whatever, I, I, I have a feeling that this is referencing that that there is a uh, if there's idolatry in the end times at this point it is idolatry related to the antichrist and his system i don't get the impression that the antichrist is somehow you know uh is is ecumenical or whatever only in the sense of yeah all churches worship me uh he's he's not okay with other worship of anybody else but himself he's a he's a megalomaniac to the unbelievable extreme so now um the culture i believe the culture of end times and how weird it will get i mean in one sense i do think that that we're going to be used to supernatural things the two witnesses and you know all the stuff they're doing as well as stuff like uh the false prophet is calling down fire from heaven this is to promote and the antichrist as a true as the true messiah in my opinion and to do other things of this nature that are going to be obviously supernatural but all the supernatural things that i see happening are very much related to the jewish culture in terms of a a world um that is enthralled with judaism i particularly believe as as improbable as it sounds. And one of the reasons that I resisted this for so long is because geopolitically or my current situation right now or how I view the world, it it makes, it honestly makes no sense that this could happen. But at the same time, that's what a lot of people said about a lot of stuff that the Bible said uh, when it came to pass. They were like, oh, so the Bible was right. So I'm going to go ahead and err on the side of the Bible said so for this too and say that it looks to me like the whole world um, starts to see the Jewish people and their their belief that they have found their Messiah and the supernatural events that surround that as proof that, in fact, there is something to this guy. Um, and I mentioned uh, recently in a podcast about I, I was at a, at a wedding uh, last weekend and I was talking about this particular idea and just something that I guess I'd never articulated before that the Antichrist will have a very, very good case that of, of blasphemy in the sense that he's going to be, be able to point to a lot of scripture and say, look, 
I have fulfilled all this stuff. Did you know? Did, the, did the, any other Messiah candidate put make you guys the capital city of the world? Did any other Messiah candidate destroy your enemies? Like all these scriptures say, he can quote chapter and verse all day long. We talk about three hundred, you know, prophecies that Jesus m- fulfilled. Well, the Antichrist is going to be able to point to a few hundred himself and say, "Look, I have done this stuff." Did Jesus do this stuff? No. And I think that he's going to make a very good case to the Jews and to the world, especially when you take into account a lot of supernatural things that will be happening or said to be happening. And keep in mind, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know about the two witnesses and the fire being called down from heaven by the false prophet and all this other stuff and the temples and all this stuff that's very obvious in in scripture. I think that uh, so, yeah, I think that the somehow or another, the the culture is very Jewish. I think that I've mentioned before, like finding the Ark of the Covenant, which seems to be a necessary part of, of the daily sacrifices, I, I I would think. And we do know that the daily sacrifices, daily sacrifices begin again. My personal view, and I haven't quite fleshed all this out exactly, but it seems as though the Antichrist is going along as the Messiah just fine uh, for the good three and a half years. And I could be wrong about this. Or at least there's there's talk, and then there's it's obvious, and then... And then at the three and a half year mark, it seems that he goes into this now I'm God mode and it seems like a lot of people buy it, but there's probably a lot of people at that point that are like, "Mm, I'm not sure I can go there with you. I I don't know. But then you've got all the other stuff that he implements at that time, the persecution and all the other stuff that basically turns the whole thing into, um, you know, a massive uh, genocide and all this other stuff. So things get out of hand pretty quickly with all the death that happens at that point. And then at some unknown point after that, God will step in and stop um, the persecution essentially by rapturing everybody and then begin the wrath of God on those people that are left and ultimately concluding in the Antichrist's destruction as well. So the point is um, that I think the culture is, as I've talked about at length here, I think it is somehow very um, like the like Revelation 17 and 18 talk about, that the world is made drunk by the wine of the fierceness or wrath of her adultery, her fornication. She, then in my view, it's Mystery Babylon is the city that endorses, embraces the Antichrist, um, rides the Antichrist as if, as, as she says, I am no widow, I have a husband. She has found her husband, she's no longer a widow, but in fact, he turns on her and destroys her. It's all a big, uh, it's all a big ruse. But during that time, the world is made drunk by the fierceness of her fornication. She fornicates with this false god so thoroughly that the world is drawn into it. So, so I see things as supernatural, but probably not in the in the spooky kind of way that I have in the past, uh, where I had to sort of incorporate a lot of aliens and other things to this that I don't now think are necessary. Um, if aliens are part of this, so be it. If you know, or fake aliens or demons or pretending to be aliens or however it works, um, you know, so be it. But I just don't see that as necessary, nor do I see it as what scripture is talking about. It could happen, anything could happen, but it's not, if it is, it's not spoken about in, in scripture, in my opinion. Okie dokie. Uh, I think that concludes the podcast for today. As I mentioned, I've got a lot of stuff coming on the feed, so please consider subscribing. 
uh, to this feed and stay tuned. I, I've been playing the Charles Cooper Faith for the Final series. I hope you've been enjoying that. I'll continue to do that. Uh, the next two will be out next week. So I will talk to you then, and we'll see you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.